for you to get. All right, uh, again, let's take our Bibles, go to Romans chapter 9. Now, uh, just before we go to the passage, I want to do a very, very quick overview of where we've been. So the last two Sunday nights, we've been talking about biblical election. What is it? Who does it apply to? And what are the different circumstances that go with it? So again, Romans chapter 9 through 11, basically we're talking about the Jewish people. And uh, God does this, if you will, parenthetical passage, Romans 9 through 11, specifically dealing with Israel. And of course, there's application for the church as well. But he's really, he's spending time, he's talking to his Jewish audience. And uh, just as a quick reminder, Deuteronomy 7, we've gone through this twice now. Uh, God is pointing out who the Jewish people are to him. And in Deuteronomy 7, he says, For you, speaking of the Jewish people, are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. Now, when you, when you look at the concept, he's chosen you. It's like it's not an optional deal here. God chose the Jewish people. That's part of his sovereign plan. So when we're looking at that, of course, and Paul's going to be referring to these passages as we get into Romans 9, all of a sudden people in different theological circles are like, well, God predestines everyone to a certain place. And we got into the concept of election when it came to Christians' eternity or the non-Christian eternity. Does God elect people to heaven and does God elect people to hell? Where last week, uh, Sunday night, we spent the entire message, I believe, on showing that uh, God does not predestinate anyone to an eternal place. It's a personal choice that every single individual has to make. So the cal- I was fairly strong, and uh, I, of course I never mean to be offensive to folks, but when it comes to the five points, the tulip that we talked about, the five major points of Calvinism, and uh, uh, basically, it's like, Pastor, do you subscribe to the five points of Calvinism? The answer is no, I absolutely do not. Uh, I don't believe that God just died for the elect, which is one of the points of Calvinism. I don't believe that God forces people to come to himself. Uh, uh, in other words, that he forces or predestines someone to trust Christ. Uh, we went through uh, uh, three different sections last week. And the last section were all dealt with a multitude of verses on free will, that it's your choice. You've got to make that decision. And you know, it's, it's very interesting. The unsaved community could care less about whether God's predestinating somebody one way or the other. You know who gets upset about it? It's the Christians. And uh, they're like, well, God, God makes it very clear that he predestines some to hell and he predestines some to heaven. And I'm like, well, show me that in the Bible. The only thing that God does talk about, and this is a little bit of review again, that uh, uh, election or predestination is based on a particular word that starts with an F, and we went through that passage. What is that word? What's the word? Foreknowledge. foreknowledge. There you go. So God says, based on his foreknowledge, does he know whether you're going to choose to accept them or not? Does God know? Yes. Absolutely he does. He's omniscient. He knows everything. So uh, uh, when we go to uh, just a verse as simple as John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Wait a minute. Does God, God only loves the elect, though. How could he love the world? How, how do you argue that position? 
And my, uh, may I suggest that you can't argue that position. There's no defense for it. Well, the Bible says that you haven't chosen me, but I've chosen you. Well, uh, uh, that is uh, uh, in context as meaning, but did God force any single person in here to come to himself? No. Does the Holy Spirit work on people? Does the Holy Spirit uh, uh, convict you? Does the Holy Spirit uh, uh, get into your mind, if you will, trying to get you to come to Christ? Would you agree that he does? Yes, he does. Absolutely. The Holy Spirit works on people's hearts and, and on their minds. But uh, there's got to be that time when somebody makes a conscious decision to place their faith and trust in Christ. Uh, so anyway, when we're talking about Israel in Romans 9 through 11, there is a whole bunch of, a uh, whole bunch of, that's bad, that's bad preaching. Uh, there's a, a multitude of passages, that's much more elite. There's a multitude of passages that refer to, yes, God absolutely chose Israel. Uh, that was, that's an undeniable choice that God made. He did have a specific election, if you will, of Israel. But wait a second. When we're talking about a national election, are we talking about every single Jewish person, therefore, became a believer in Christ? Yes or no? No, absolutely not. God said, I chose you as a nation. You're my chosen people. I, I've put a lot of stock in you. But as we go through Romans 9 through 11, he makes it very clear, not all who are called Israel are Israel. In other words, uh, uh, and, and I wish this wasn't true, but I'm, I'm sure it is true in any Bible-believing church when, uh, on Sunday mornings when the place is filled up. And uh, we don't know the heart of every person. I mean, I don't know the heart of any person outside of my own. And uh, uh, if we could put it this way, everybody that attends Union Grove Baptist Church literally is not part of Union Grove Baptist Church. And you say, well, what do you mean? Because not every single person in here on a Sunday morning has placed their faith and trust in Christ. Do we know who they are? Well, sometimes yes, some, most of the times no. I mean, if somebody comes in and says, man, I haven't got a clue if I die to go to heaven, okay, uh, uh, we've, we know that, and, and it's somebody who needs to come to Christ. But that is totally different one-on-one -on -one versus a national calling by God of a particular people known as the Jewish people. So yes, uh, verse 8, Deuteronomy 7, But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. All right, so... Is it proper to say that God elected or he chose the Jewish people for his own? Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm getting down in uh, a little bit further down into the puzzle. That's the 30,000-foot picture. But when you get down to ground level, did every single Jew that was called by God, is every single Jewish person one that trusts the Lord? No. So that's the part where there has to be free will where they where every single Jewish person just like every single Gentile has to make a conscious decision one way or the other in other words to trust Christ or reject him so again just a very quick review Romans 9 to 11 specifically deals with the Jewish people specifically deal with God's sovereignty in his relationship with the Jewish people now there's great practical application for us but Paul, of course, when he's dealing with Romans, when he's dealing with the Jewish people that were part of his ministry, he's making it very clear about their relationship and where it needs to be. So the Jewish people also, we went through that, 
Would you think that if you're, you're called to God that you'd actually want to live for him? Would you think that? All right, did the Jewish people always live for the Lord? No. Uh, absolutely not. So God, even though he had these unconditional covenants, now this, and we've gone through this many times, and I, and I bring them up a lot because they're very, very important. When God gives an unconditional covenant, in other words, everything in those four covenants are based on what God said he would do, whether the Jews are obedient or not, God is going to fulfill his end of the bargain. So, again, simplistic. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, the Abrahamic covenant, God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who what? Curse you. There's no condition there. God said very specifically, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. doesn't change based on the Jews' behavior. You go to uh, uh, the land covenant, multiple places, Genesis 15, Deuteronomy 30, starting at verse 5. And God says, listen, Jewish people, one day I am going to give you the complete land of Israel. That is an unconditional covenant. Okay, just a little review. Have the Jewish people received all the land that's been promised to them? Absolutely not. Uh, let's see how many remember. Approximately what percentage of land do the Jews currently, are they over uh, based on the totality of the land that they will one day receive? What percentage do they have today? About 10% is, is a good guesstimate. All right, but that land is promised to the Jewish people. Again, we call it the land covenant. Uh, let's see, we go to uh, 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 what we talked a little bit about this morning, the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel 7, 6 to 16. And in the Davidic covenant, what did God promise the Jewish people? Well, he promised David from the line of David would come a king one day. Who's that king? It's Christ. And he made it very clear that from the line of David, regardless of the behavior of the Jews, regardless whether they're following, following him or not, Jesus would come from the line of David. Oh, well, let's see, by the way, in uh, the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, did the Messiah come? Was he from the line of David? Will he one day rule as king of kings and lord of lords on this earth? Again, absolutely will. Revelation 21 to 7 clearly states that. Multiple passages in the Old Testament. Unconditional covenants, regardless of whether the Jews follow God or not, that's a bargain he's going to keep. Uh, the new covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through by, uh, the end of the chapter, he said, this is a covenant I am making with the house of Judah and the house of Jerusalem. And he promised them a land. He also promised that he would preserve the Jewish people. You say, well, wait a minute. You remember, uh, you remember the, uh, uh, Jeremiah tells, tells folks how to get rid of the Jewish people. You remember the, you remember the passage? We've gone through this. And uh, uh, God said, listen, I'll tell you how to get rid of the Jewish people. And Hitler messed up. He messed up big time. He didn't do what God told him to. If Hitler would have followed God's plan, he would have eliminated the Jewish people, but he didn't do it. And all he had to do was two different things, God says, that uh, you can do to eliminate the Jewish people. He said, if you could take a lasso and you can throw it around the sun, moon, and the stars and pull them in and destroy them, then I'll destroy the Jewish people. So that's all Hitler had to do. He had to get a lasso or something, get around the sun, the moon, and the stars, bring them down, destroy them, and then God said, I'll get rid of my Jewish people. Now, of course, was God being a little uh, sarcastic? Absolutely he was. He's like, you can't destroy my people. You can't take them away. Second thing he says in that passage is like, uh, get a tape measure. 
Get, get your measuring rod out. If you can measure the, the universe and, and measure the vastness of my creation, if you can do that, get me the measurements and I'll destroy the Jewish people. Now, can you measure God's universe? Folks, with all the massive telescopes that exist, with all the technology and the astronomy that exists, our, our folk, they, I mean, you just listen to them, especially the Christian astronomers like uh, uh, Dr. Uh, D, I forget, David DeYoung, I think, is the, uh, the astronomer. I may have the first name wrong. But uh, uh, you can't not get rid of God's people. So uh, did they mess up? We went through the three major deportations and dispersions of the Jewish people back during the Assyrian deportation, the Babylonian deportation, and then the Roman dispersion in AD 70. Why did those things happen? Because the Jewish people had not followed the Lord. All right, so what? Uh, again, this is our review. We're going to get into the uh, tonight where we're going to go in just a moment. But here's the issue. The Jewish people, they're not guaranteed anything as individuals. They're guaranteed, as we'll see as we progress through Romans 9 through 11, there will be what's known as a national salvation. The, the remnant of the Jewish people, and we're going to get into the remnant tonight, there is a remnant of the Jewish people that God will save and take them into the millennial kingdom. So there is this choice group, this remnant group that we'll look at tonight that God is indeed going to preserve and take into the millennial kingdom. And those are the ones that God is talking about, his choice remnant people. Um, we're going to skip through this because we've already been through it. But here's the issue. When we're getting down again, once again, to try and get through this election concept, is God choosing this group to go to heaven? Is God choosing this group to go to hell? Has God choose, chosen a, a, a certain people or certain groups or certain ethnicities? How does all that work, which is where we're going to end up going? What did, did God choose between Hagar and Sarah? Did he? Absolutely he did. He said, uh, Hagar's the bondwoman. Uh, we talked about that. I have not chosen Hagar. I have not chosen her son to be the inheritor of Israel, to be the one through which his line, God's line would go. But he did choose Sarah. What was the name of Sarah's son through which God decided to move the Jewish people forward? Isaac. And who's the other one? Isaac and... All right, we, we got two different families going here. So we got Jacob and Esau. Did God choose Jacob or Esau through which the line would go? Jacob. And he makes it very clear. And in this passage, he says, Jacob of I love, but Esau I have hated. He uses a strong term, a, a strong uh, term of division. God says, I chose Jacob through which my line's going to go. Not Esau, his technically by a few minutes, older brother. God actually disrupted the Jewish culture, and Jacob was the second born of the twins, and yet God said Jacob's going to lead things. Did God make that choice? Well, now we got a problem, and that's actually where we're going to go to in Romans tonight. We're going to discuss that problem. Why is God doing things that are anti-cultural to the Jewish people? Why does God do things that bug us? It's like, why are you doing this, Lord? Why are you choosing things this way? Why, are, why aren't you doing it the way I think you should? 
And that's really, and I'm dead serious, that, that is the question tonight that God is going to answer. All right, so when we're looking at the children of promise, just a very quick review. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. In other words, he's saying, just because you're born a Jew does not mean you're one of my children. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah, the wife of Abraham, shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to, there it is, election or God's choice, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Therefore it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. All right, so now here's the issue that, of course, is causing tremendous controversy even today among different churches, different theologians, different Christian seminaries and schools. When you take something that was specifically designed for the Jewish people, and all of a sudden you extract that out and you try and make it a general statement about all believers, whether they are elected or not, that's where you get into some seriously bad doctrine. So again, Romans 9 through 11, and I'm going to ask you to say it all together with me, what ethnic group of people is Paul dealing with here? The, the Jewish people. All right, It's extremely important. If you take this out of context, you're going to come up with these sideline uh, theological conclusions which are absolutely wrong. Did God elect the Jewish people to be his chosen people? Absolutely he did. They were the called out ones. They're the chosen ones. And he says, not because you're the biggest group, not because you're the strongest group militarily. I called you out because I called you out. Because I love you and I care about you and I want you to be my chosen people through which, of course, 99% of the Old Testament discusses them. All right, so I know I've taken a lot of time on that, but it's absolutely important so we don't mess up when we get to the church age concepts. All right, and there it is again, Romans 9.13. God said, listen, Jacob I have loved. I've called him. He's the one through which my line will go. Let me see. What was Jacob's name changed to? Israel. So God made it very clear. Listen, it's through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name has changed to Israel, that is my called out group, period. And again, the secondary issue, which we've gone to a couple times already, not everyone who I have called out is going to end up being one of my, uh, uh, one that places their faith and lives for the Lord. All right, so let's get down to, well, we'll go through one more. Again, God makes it very clear. What shall we say then? Is God unrighteous? Is God picking favorites here? And God made it very clear, for he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. All right, and again, he's confining this contextually to the Jewish people versus the Gentile people. God put his stock, if you will, into the Jewish people. So very important. All right, so let's move on. And tonight we're going to start out with 
is, what is Jesus? What is Jesus to you? What is Jesus to others? Is he the life-giving one, or is he the stumbling stone? Take your Bibles, let's go to Romans 9.19, and we'll start at verse 19. Romans 9, once again, you will say to me then, why does he, speaking of God, still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Now he's going to make a couple of quotes from the Old Testament. As he, God, also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, here's the next PowerPoint, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Again, as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, the remnant, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have become like Gomorrah. In other words, totally wiped out. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of what? Okay, how do you come to Christ? Through righteousness, your righteousness, or through faith? Faith, all right? So now he's bringing it into the current context. Uh, verse 31, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by, what's the word? Faith. faith, all right? So faith is operative. But as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion, speaking of Jerusalem, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense and whoever believes on him, Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. Father, I pray now that as we open up this wonderful passage, as we see not only what you have done and are doing and will do for the Jewish people, but Father, also for those that are of uh, non-Jewish ethnic backgrounds, what you've also prepared for all Gentiles, all Jewish people that were placed their faith and trust in you by faith alone one comes to you, and we make that perfectly clear through the Word of God. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us as we study through this this evening, and uh, we'll give you the glory for it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, new section, Romans chapter 9, verse 19. And that's why we had to do the review. We had to understand why all of a sudden is this next question being asked. Well, the, the, the people, when you hear this, it's like, wait a minute. It just sounds, Lord, like you do all the picking, you do all the choosing, your sovereign will is 100% in effect. So if I, don't, if I choose not to accept you or if I do choose to accept you, what's the big deal because you've already made the choice? 
So that they're basically making an accusation against God. They're railing on God himself. So what's it say? You will say to me then, why does he, why does God still find fault? How do you resist God? Well, you can't resist his will. Well, and, and what are they looking back at? They're looking back at God's choice with Jacob and Esau when Jacob becomes Israel, the Jewish people as a whole. They're looking back at, at God's choice uh, of, of others, which you, which you mentioned. Jacob and Esau, who is the, the couple before Jacob and Esau, the twins, or the two individuals, the two brothers, constantly fighting. Abraham, Isaac, who were Isaac's kids? No, constantly fighting. Constantly there's this friction that's existed. By the way, the Arab community, the Palestinian community, those that are anti-Jewish, it all comes right back to uh, when you come back to the rifts that have existed all the way back through the patriarchs and the different sons. All right, so let's go to, we're going to do a little bit of background here as we work on the sovereignty of God. Then Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, remember Old Testament times, in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not God in, or are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. Well, what, what is he bringing out here? He's bringing out, he's bringing out the sovereignty of God. It's like what you rule, Lord, what you rule, God, that's exactly what is going to come to pass. So you have this strong concept, once again, about God's control over things. Well, then we go to Romans 9.20. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why'd you make me like this? In other words, I'm just a victim of my circumstances. This is how you made me. Everything, you control everything, your sovereignty is overall. I have no choice in the matter. Now, some may be here tonight saying, I don't have a choice. You've already chosen exactly who I am, what's going to happen, and everything I do is predestined by God. poetic pause how many of you have lived the perfect life <laughs> got any takers well wait a minute if God preordained every single thing you do is God the author of sin that's, that's a heresy that came out way back in uh, theological debate days it's a heresy. How many people are able to live perfect on this earth? None. Did anyone ever live perfect on this earth? One person, Jesus Christ, born sinlessly, without sin, never sinned. No sin was found in him. So let me just use a very simplistic argument then. If God is not the author of sin... And I, I, I hate to go here because on occasion I get a wrong answer, so don't raise your hand. There are those that believe when they become Christians that they can live a sinlessly perfect life. 
You say, well, Pastor, do you endorse that theology? No, I do not. Uh, I brought it up. I haven't talked about it in a long, long time. One of the uh, Bible colleges I went to one day, uh, it was a big, big church, about 7,000 people were in the church, several thousand in the school. And uh, one of the uh, professors one day got up in chapel and started to preach, and all of a sudden he got, he got everybody's attention. He said, folks, I, I got to tell you this, I, I, and I'm serious. I haven't sinned in at least six months. I haven't done one thing wrong. I've, I've been basically sinlessly perfect for the last six months. And all of us are sitting down there and like, where are you working tomorrow? And uh, he, I mean, he was as dead serious as could be. Haven't, haven't done anything wrong, haven't had a bad thought, haven't done any. I, I, basically, you can all live sinlessly per, perfect if you walk with God. You say, well, how'd that work out? Well, after that chapel, we never saw him again. Folks, there's not a single one of us that can go six months without messing up. Uh, I, I try to go six minutes without messing up. You know, hopefully we can do a little better than that, but I uh, hate to tell you until we get our glorified bodies and uh, thoroughly are walking in God's will that, yeah, we're going to make mistakes. So when, when this question comes to God, and again, we're looking at Romans 9, talking about the election of the Jewish people, and what was happening is they're pulling in those doctrines, Old Testament doctrines, and saying, well, based on that then, based on your calling of Israel, based on your calling of the Jewish people, how am I any different? And God comes back, and, and it's like, why have you made me like this? Well, we've got to move on to get the answer. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Again, contextually, we're dealing with the Jewish people. And there's multiplicity of places where this is brought out. So we go all the way back to the prophet Jeremiah, Old Testament, prophet, uh, Jeremiah 18, verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, O house of who? Israel. Can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So we're going back uh, to an illustration God used multiple times in the Old Testament. God specifically called the Jewish people to walk and to live with him. But he also used other folks, those that were opposers, if you will, for vessels of dishonor. How did Pharaoh uh, pan out? Was he a pro-Israel guy? Egypt ruler, was he pro-Israel? He's a vessel of dishonor. And God said, listen, I, I've called uh, uh, some to be vessels of honor. I've called others, basically, that he knew would never come to him based on his foreknowledge. And even God used those who were in opposition to him and his people to perform his will. He had a purpose for them as in vessels of honor and dishonor. But in a great house, Second uh, Timothy now, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Wait a second. Verse 21. 
Therefore, now we're in the Christian context now. We're back in Timothy instead of Romans. If anyone does what? Cleanses himself. Is there a little volition here? Is there a little free will here? Is there a little choice here? It's a choice you make today. Am I going to live for the Lord or am I not going to live for him? Am I going to be a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor? And uh, therefore, if, any, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, God didn't say he's going to force you into it. God didn't say I'm going to force you to be a, a vessel of honor today. He's like, it's a choice. God's free will. And every single one of us, including me, makes the choice on a daily basis. Am I going to get mad at my spouse? Am I going to get mad at mom and dad? Am I going to uh, 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 cuss and swear when I get ticked off at work or at school? Am I going to live a, a godly life? Am I going to tell others about Christ or am I not going to tell them? Am I going to pray? Am I not going to pray? Am I going to do as God has instructed me to do and try and walk in a pure, clean, righteous way? Or am I going to just throw all that out and do whatever I feel like? Is that a choice you make? Yes or no? I mean, it's a choice, and you have that choice on a daily basis. In fact, you have a choice every second of every single day, which is, again, why uh, I, be, I encourage folks a couple of weeks ago now to read the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, spiritual warfare. Every time we take off God's armor, spiritual armor, we're subject to what? Spiritual defeat. So we can be defeated. We can choose to do wrong, and that's the point that he's bringing out here. Uh, here also, here's another thing that God says. Listen, uh, 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 adults, flee youthful lusts. Isn't that interesting how he put that? Flee youthful lusts. Why do you use that term? Why do you just say flee lust? Think back, and uh, we got a bit of an eclectic crowd tonight age-wise. Those of you that are a little bit seasoned, a little more matured, what I'm talking about is those of you that got gray hair kind of thing. But uh, think back to when you were a teenager. How easy was it for you to keep your mind thinking constant, pure thoughts compared to those that are seasoned today? Was it easier then or now? A lot easier now. I often say when I'm, I'm preaching on a tough passage and we're going through a list of sinful things, and it's like, you know, folks, I'm, and it's not that you're done and past and you can't be tempted when you get a little few years under your belt, but, man, when you're a teenager compared to now, I mean, it's a total different story. When I was a teenager, it was every single minute of every single day you had to fight, fight, fight to keep your mind straight, pure, in the right direction. Snack. And those of you here, here's a good thing for the young people. When you get as old as I am, which is still fairly young, but uh, when you get up, get to the, it, it gets a whole lot easier. I, I'm, I, and for the young people that are here, and it's like you struggle and you fight, and it's like, man, why am I thinking this stuff? Why, why do I feel the way I do? And, and, and you're, you're fighting internally. And it's like, you know, I want to do right, and I want to be pure, and I don't want to think those things that I know I shouldn't be thinking. And I want uh, those that are guys, you want to think about females with respect and purity, and the girls have the same thing towards guys. Deep down inside, if you're a Christian, you know that's the way you should respond, but internally you're blowing up inside. It's like, why am I... Why does my body want to do certain things? Why does my brain want to go to certain places? 
Now, we're not going to get graphic tonight, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's tough and it's hard. And you fight on a daily basis like, Lord, would you keep my mind pure? Would you keep my thoughts pure? Would you help me to get through these tough times? And when you get a little bit older, things may not be as intense and the hormones aren't raging like they are when you're much younger. But God makes it very clear. Listen, adults, listen, young people, flee those youthful lusts. They're not going, they never leave. But they're there. Flee the youthful lust, but here's what you must do. Now, wait a minute. If God is instructing us on things to do, does that mean that we're robots and that uh, God, God is saying, okay, you're going to think this way, act this way, and live this way, and I'm going to make you do that? Is he saying that? Absolutely not. You have a free will. Therefore, the Lord is saying here, Christian, flee youthful lust. That's a direct command of God that you have to do. He can't do it for you. Pursue. He can't do it for you. You've got to do it. Pursue righteousness. In other words, a right standing with God. Faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But here's another thing. Again, a command of God. Not robots. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. I said, uh, I kind of commented on this morning, I don't know how many had caught it. When we were going through all, I mean, a big giant list of things that uh, Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians of things that were challenges to him. One of the the toughest things that that uh, the longer I'm uh, in ministry, the longer I deal with people, do you know what the toughest thing for Christians is in in a church? It's getting along. You say, seriously? It's like everybody loves each other here. Well, sort of. <laughs> I wish that were true all the time. And, and, and I mean, normally you don't see it, but it's like, well, you know, that person offended me, and this person did that, and this person said that, and I don't like that. I, and folks get upset and they get bent out of shape, and it's like, I can't believe they treat me like that. How disrespectful. And, and it's like, who do you think puts that in people's minds? Can God or, strike that? How does Satan destroy God's people? There's only one way he can do it. God tells us how. How can Satan destroy the church of God by doing what? Can he, can he destroy it from without or within? Within. You see, if uh, the person down the block there that's never been into Union Grove Baptist Church says, ah, I hate all those folks at Union Grove Baptist Church. They're a bunch of hypocrites and liars and thieves and whatever. How much do you think that bothers me? Well, First of all, I want to hear why he's saying that. (laughs) Like, okay, if you got some uh, teeth to that, what you just said there, brother, Uh, sir, ma'am, if they've got no teeth to it, it's just their perception. It's like, okay, fine. But if someone inside the church says, yeah, you know, so-and-so, they're a bad person. They're a member of Union Grove Baptist Church, but they offended me. They are disrespecting me. And all of a sudden you get these little factions that start and, and, and people get upset with somebody and, and, it, and it continues and it festers and it burns. And it's like, I have preached more sermons on that, whether you know it or not, because it constantly rears its head in a little teeny way. And it's like, every time I see that little head jump up, I take a hammer and I smash it. It's like, you can't have that. 
It's like, and it's so easy. Satan is not stupid. He's very smart. And he's like, if I can get two of God's people starting to have conflict, starting to go at each other, and being causing disunity, I'll tell you a secret, because you're here Sunday night. How many of you could tell me what passage Justin read this morning? It's out of Proverbs. You remember what chapter? Six. You're correct. Go to Proverbs chapter six. You say, Pastor, are you that calculated? Yes. <laughs> Everything for a reason. Because I don't want Satan getting a foothold in Union Grove Baptist Church any more than you do. Go to Proverbs chapter six, verse sixteen. I didn't preach on it, but I did have it read this morning. And it goes through a bunch of different things that, uh, uh, that God recommends we do. Oh, I'm sorry, he doesn't recommend it. He basically orders us to do. And then he comes to a very interesting passage where God's going to talk about what he hates. Now, doesn't that seem a little antithetical to God? He's going to talk about, I mean, when you talk about God, do you think about hating something? You really don't. You think about God as love and kindness and so forth. But catch this now, Rome, or Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. These six things the Lord, what? I, I mean, he says, I hate this. Valerie always tells me, she's like, uh, uh, and, and on occasion will we'll say, man, I really hate this. And then she'll say, well, that's probably way too strong of a word to say hate. I mean, when you're talking about hate, it's like, this has got to go. I'm not putting up with it. It's gone. So when we say the word hate, it's a very, very strong word. Uh, uh, if you say, I hate Brussels sprouts, right? It's like you are, I mean, if you hate it, you aren't eating it. Oh, you love them. You cook them, you, 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 uh, you broil, or boil, not boil, broil them. Get a nice little dark coat around them, put some seasoning on them. All of a sudden, I became, I hated Brussels sprouts. Oh, I shouldn't have said that word. And all of a sudden I learned, and now I love them. You just got to cook them right. Anyway, that was, that was for free. God says these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Now, folks, do you get any stronger language than that in the Bible? I, I would say, I would suggest no. And here he goes, a proud look. Folks, do you know that one of the biggest destroyers of, the, of a Christian walk is pride? That's why I always tell, and, and how many times we've done this here, I don't know, but many. And I do it with every time I counsel young people for getting married or couples that are having a difficult time. we got three steps coming up to the platform, and here's the platform. And you got two people both wanting to talk into the mic at the same time. And this person says, get off my platform. This person says, get off my platform. And they're arguing, and they're fighting, and they're fussing. And until one person finally says, all right, I'm going to get off the platform. I'm going to give you the microphone, so to speak, and I'm going to support you. Now, the person up here can take that as a prideful move, or they can realize that that person humbled themselves. And if you really want your relationships to work, the person that's left up here says, you know, I've been wrong too. And both of them get off the platform. They put God up here where he belongs, that he should be the one ruling it. Both of them, therefore, say, listen, we're putting God as number one, and I am here to serve 
you. Proud look. Boy, get rid of that. You get rid of conflict. How many of you like conflict? I know some people actually do. I, I, I was just going to say I hate conflict, but I kind of do. I don't like conflict. It's not fun. A lying tongue. God says, I hate it. Now, here's something I trust most, if not all, in the room have never done. Hands that shed innocent blood. A lot of murder going on back in the day. By the way, is there a lot of murder still going on today? I mean, in, a, in our culture, me and you, you know, we're good Bible church, Bible-thumping kind of people. We, we don't think about murdering people, yet it happens every single day in our neighborhoods, every day. A heart that devises wicked plans. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get her. And you figure it out and you connive and you, and you think about, how am I going to get that person back? God says, I hate that. I hate it. Feet that are swift and running to evil. God says, I hate it. And here we uh, another form of lying, a false witness who speaks lies. In other words, false accusations against people. And then he comes down to the next one, which is the one that, goodness me, has caused more churches to split than anything else, and one who sows discord among the brethren. That's it. Satan says, yep, if I can get a couple of good leaders in the church to start fussing and fighting, woo, he's going to get the victory. Church after church after church splits over sowing discord among the brethren. It's just, it's part of Satan's plan. And God says, I hate it. If God hates it, what ought we to do? Well, we ought to hate it too. Right? I mean, in this context, it's proper. So, uh, what does he say? Going back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, 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 here's what you should You flee those lusts, the youthful lusts. But, here's what you ought to do. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now we go negative again. But avoid, here it is again, foolish and ignorant disputes. Satan says, let me see. How can I get folks to fuss and fight over the silliest, dumbest things just to cause a split within the family, within the church, within God's family? I'm going to figure out how to get you mad at someone else. I'm going to figure out how to get you mad at your spouse. I'm going to figure out how to get you mad at your children. I'm going to figure out how to get the children mad at their parents. I'm going to do everything I can to try and make people fuss and feud and fight so that I can split him up. Boy, if Satan can accomplish that, did, did, he, did he win something? I mean, in his mind, of course he did. And, and it's like, boy, we've got to be on guard about this day and night, night and day. And that's, of course, why Paul points it out. Verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What else does he say? For God did not, now here's a good thing. Did God appoint you to wrath, Christian? All right, so there's a good thing. God says, on the other hand, I've not appointed my people to wrath. That is something that God has chosen for you. But did he choose you for salvation? He said, I didn't appoint you to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now, how did you get that salvation? Did all of a sudden you just woke up and you knew you were saved? I mean, something happened in your heart. Something happened in your life where you realized 
You were a sinner. You were separated from God. And the Holy Spirit began to work on you. And all of a sudden you realized your need for Jesus Christ. And you placed your faith and trust in Him. You may be sitting here tonight watching on the internet and saying, well, that's never happened to me. I never realized that. Well, folks, that's something you need to realize some point in your life. You don't automatically go to heaven just because you think you're going to heaven. You've got to make a conscious decision to place your faith and trust in Him. God did not appoint Christians to wrath. That's who He's talking about. It's a Christian context in 1 Thessalonians. That's good news. That's an appointment. That is, you will, is God's predestination for people that have placed their faith and trust in Christ is not to go through the tribulation period. It's to go uh, uh, up to heaven at the rapture. That's God, and that's a good thing. God has sovereignly chosen to keep us from that horrible time known as the tribulation. Why? Because Jesus died for you that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And what does he conclude it with? Comfort each other and edify one another just as also you are doing. All right, uh, we'll do Hosea and then we'll quit tonight. Romans 9.25 says this. And he, God, also says in Hosea, wait a minute, Romans chapter 9, what is the context? What group is he talking to? He's talking to Israel. He's talking to the Jewish people again. Now, when I took you to Timothy, when I took you to Thessalonians, I made it practical for you, showing you some of the benefits that God has for you. Also making it very clear that you have a free will that you either determine today that you will live for God or not live for Him. You will either flee lustful, youthful lusts, if you will, or you will go to them. You will either choose to live righteously for God or you will choose not to live righteously for God. That's what you do. But now we're going back to the Jewish context. So God also says in Hosea, in Romans chapter 9, I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who is not beloved. Again, he's going back to the Jewish context. Did the Jewish people always obey God? No. And he's like, at this point, in Hosea, he's talking about the Jewish people that were dispersed to Babylon. They were kicked out of their country because they refused to follow him. He wants one day to restore the Jewish people back into good favor with him. Verse 26, And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now what does that go right back to? Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant, land covenant. All those things will come to pass. Hosea, and here's the quote, chapter 1, verse 10. Again, Hosea is not church age prophecy. It's speaking about the Jewish people. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Malachi are all Jewish prophecies. Yet the number of the children of, and here it is, Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass the place where it was said to them, You Jewish people are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. And we'll tell you when that's going to happen in a minute. Verse 11. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel, Judah, of course, being the southern part of Israel, Israel being the north ten tribes, Judah the southern two, they shall be gathered together. Has that happened yet? No, it's not fulfilled prophecy. It's still coming. Uh, Shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. Who do you think that head's going to be? 
and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day, oh, here's a good word, Jezreel. Jezreel Valley, Megiddo, Armageddon are all synonymous terms. When uh, multiple folks will be going with us to Israel, May of 2024, we will go to the Valley of Jezreel. We will go to the Valley of Armageddon. We will go to Megiddo, and you'll stand up on Megiddo, and you will look down, and all from as far as you can look to the north, all the way across to the east, all the way across to the south, you will see a giant, giant, giant landmass known as where the Valley of Armageddon, Jezreel, or Megiddo are. Great will be the day of Jezreel. When uh, uh, after the rapture of the church, you have the seven-year tribulation period. Jesus comes back, Revelation 19, 11. He comes back with a sword of the Spirit, if you will, the sword coming out of his mouth to the valley of Jezreel, the valley of Armageddon, to the place of Megiddo. And at that point, all the nations, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, all the nations that have gathered together to fight against God, he will wipe out at that time. And what does he do after he wipes out all the detractors? What does he do? He marches right down to Jerusalem builds the fourth temple and becomes, as Revelation tells us, in chapter 19, he becomes the king of kings and the Lord of lords and rules on this earth for 1,000 years. Hosea chapter 2, also quoted by Paul in Romans 9, in that day, every time you see in that day, we're talking about a prophetic scenario, almost always speaking about the tribulation time or the end of it. In that day, the future day yet, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the beasts, with birds of the air and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. Have the Jewish people ever lied down safely yet? Will the Jewish people one day lie down safely? When? During the 1,000-year millennial kingdom, and uh, uh, you've read other passages out of Isaiah where it talks about uh, uh, the little child will come and they'll put their hand in the den of the cobra and not be bitten. The ox will lie down with the lamb and the bear and they'll all eat what? All eat grass. I say all the hunters here get very upset with that passage. But uh, we go back to, uh, uh, if you will, pre-sin times, if you will. God reverses the curse of creation and all of a sudden all the meat eaters become vegetarians it's not so bad folks it really isn't about uh two months ago i basically uh, went to fruits and vegetables that's why people think i'm dying of cancer i'm not dying of cancer i actually am losing weight on purpose and i just went to fruits and vegetables and all of a sudden all that chubby stuff started to go away and uh, it's, it actually tastes pretty good. I'm, I'm serious. I'm, I'm good with it. Uh, but uh, you got to have good dressing. But anyway, in the millennial times, God's saying we won't be out there uh, uh, killing uh, that poor little deer outside. And you, you'll go up there and you'll play with the bear and the lion. And uh, when we were up in Yellowstone a month ago and uh, the buffalo, you get too close, what do they do? They charge you and stomp you to death. Uh, that, that's not going to happen. Uh, anymore, because uh, what will God do? He'll bring peace on the earth. Verse 19, he says, I will betroth you, Jewish people, to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know 
the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day, again, prophecy, future yet, that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine and with oil. In other words, what he's saying, Israel will be a land literally overflowing with uh, agricultural blessings. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will show her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Let's bring all this together. What have we looked at? Romans 9. God is making it very, very clear, specifically as he's addressing the Jewish people, that they are a called out chosen group. Undeniable. God chose them. He predestined, if you will, the Jewish nation to be his chosen people. The second point we made regarding the God's choosing of Israel is did every single Jewish people become one of his followers? He saves a remnant. Take your Bibles, we'll close with this. Go to Zechariah chapter 13. I promise I'll close with this because you know the verse, but I want you to see it. I want you to know where it is. I've quoted it many a time over the years. Zechariah, Malachi, so it's right before, two books before Matthew. Zechariah 14, it was one of the most profound prophetic passages in Scripture. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord, again, referring to the tribulation time. The day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. This is the battle of Armageddon. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the woman ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, we're not talking specifically about the battle of Armageddon. It's actually the campaign of Armageddon in the first couple of verses. But then we get to verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. Again, we're in the battle of uh, Armageddon, Jezreel Valley, right at Megiddo. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Owls, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it towards the south. Then what's going to happen? Go back one chapter, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 and 9, and that's the last two verses. We've talked about this so many times. What will happen to the Jewish people? Again, the 30,000-foot picture is God chose the Jewish people as his precious possession. However, only a remnant will be saved. And it shall come to pass, Zechariah 13, 8, it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. In other words, two-thirds of the Jewish people, even though they were God's chosen elect nation, two-thirds will perish. Verse 9, I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested, then will call on my name. They will call my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. God called 100% of the Jewish people to follow him. 
And God tells us right here that in the future, during the tribulation period, two-thirds of the people will reject him. Wait a minute. What will they do? They will consciously, mentally, emotionally, volitionally choose against God, and therefore only the one-third that God will protect in a place we believe is probably Petra, which is why those going to Israel will go to Petra and show you where that place is, will be saved. That remnant that will be in that hidden place, Revelation 12, every one of those people will come to the Lord. Every one. Now that's a marvelous thing. We'll continue with this as we get into more of Romans about the salvation of all those that God protects and gets through that horrible tribulation time. But let's get back to you and me as we close. Is your salvation a national salvation? Is there any nationality besides the Jewish people that God called and said, I want, you're all my chosen people. I have a German background, Polish background, Biblically, doesn't do me a bit of good. <laughs> Valerie's the only one that I, and there's maybe one or two others here. She's got a little teeny bit of Jewish blood, but I don't think even that counts today. Every single one of you, every single one of person that's outside this church walls, do they need to make a conscious decision to choose Christ or reject Him? They absolutely do. So when you look at the election, for the Christian, it's not you are chosen because you are part of a nation. And even they, as part of a nation, had to make a choice to serve or reject him. We are not, as Gentiles, part of the chosen group. And I know there, if there's a full-blooded Jewish person in here, you could include yourself in the chosen group. But most of us here tonight are not. But God says, listen what? I still love you. He said, I so loved you. We go back to that verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved, not just the Jewish people, but God so loved the what? The world, every single one of us, that he gave his only begotten son, that anyone who will place their faith and trust in him, what? They shouldn't perish or go to hell, but have everlasting life. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the truth of the word of God. And Father, it's hard sometimes, theologically, we can get confused and yet the simplicity goes back to, yes, you did choose the Jewish people. Yes, you did call them to be your precious possession. But unfortunately, so many times, so many ways, and even now, so many of your chosen ones have literally rejected you, and they pay the consequence for it. So, Father, I pray that every other single person that is of Jew or Gentile background, that we'd realize that we've been chosen by you, that we realize that you are the life giving spirit for those of us that have believed, and as we'll find out next week, a stumbling stone to those who refuse you. So, Father, I pray that we'd rejoice tonight that, yes, we were sinners. Yes, we didn't deserve heaven. But, yes, Jesus Christ, your Son, came down from heaven, died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and three days rose from the dead. And every single person, Jew or Gentile, who have placed their faith and trust in you will indeed live for eternity with